You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Years ago when I, I started writing the Strong Towns blog, there was this guy out in California named Joseph Bray Ali who would comment on our stuff and send me things and I thought, who the heck is this guy? He, he, he certainly doesn't seem like anyone that I know. He certainly is from a, a, a part of the world that I, I don't know a lot about. And I kind of made a point to reach out to him and say, hey, talk to me, tell me what's going on. And he did. And I learned a ton and uh, made a good friend. And I've had a lot of back and forth conversation. Now, all of a sudden, this crazy guy goes and runs for city council and has actually has a chance to win, is, is really doing an interesting campaign. And I said, Joseph, we got to have you on the show and talk about some of this stuff. So welcome to the podcast from Los Angeles, uh, Joseph Brayali. Joseph, welcome. Hi, good morning. Thank you, Chuck. Man, <laughs> I, when when did you start reading our stuff? Oh, was it back in like 2010? I mean, it was a while ago. I can't remember the first time you were on James Howard Kunstler's Kunstler cast, but I was a regular reader of his. And I think it was at that point where I heard I, I heard you, you talk uh, with James. And then I said, man, this is um, there's really <laughs> something going on here. Yeah. And I, I was casting about that time for what's next, I feel, in civic life, because I'm a, I have a mental disorder where that's, that's my, <laughs> I don't watch sports. Uh, you know, I don't, uh, don't, don't follow a lot of the day-to-day news, but I'm constantly trying to see what's coming next in civic life. So I heard what you had to say, and it's been, you've done a lot of hard thinking and a lot of the real legwork to develop a narrative that basically I've just tried to latch onto and, and apply to my, my own life here in a, bit, a major American metropolis. I want to talk about that first because I, you and I first got to know each other because you run a bike shop. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought, okay, that's fascinating. Talk a little bit about Flying Pigeon and how that got started and, and what you do there. Well, I started this bike shop in 2008 with my older brother, Adam. Um, in 2008, if, if it, those of you don't remember, there was a 2008 uh, Beijing Olympics in China. And I have a brother who's a very creative man. You know, he's got a lot of great ideas. And he had this great idea, quote unquote, great idea, that we would make a killing importing the famous and fabled uh, flying pigeon bicycle from communist China. You know, people get a lot of uh, criticism for products that are imported from China. But here was something where you could legitimately say, look, we're bringing, you know, this really unique, funky thing from China. And we wanted to make the city a better place for, for citizen cyclists. And that was a big... I mean, it ended up being a terrible investment, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it definitely, you know, there's a lot of times where you just hold your nose and you, you plunge in to the cold water and see, see where you end up, you know, and we, I ended up figuring out that I wanted to try it. And so that was the last eight years of my life. I've run a small bike shop and transitioned away from those, those bikes, um, and just started doing a lot of bike repairs. So I've got about eight years under my belt of professional bike mechanic work now. And prior to that, I started a cooperative, a bike repair cooperative on down the street from my house. So it was, um, it was a natural fit in terms of what I was interested in. And it kept me busy. And I was always able to use my bike shop as a place to hold neighborhood meetings. And I did a lot of that. I did a lot of organizing out of my bike shop. And it's kind of an excuse to tell my poor wife that 
well, you know, sorry, I missed work. You know, emailing everyone in the neighborhood about the latest outrage, whatever. Right. No, honey, it's all related to business, right? Right. Well, you know, and it's, I tried to work that social, um, to be a socially responsible small business. And there's a lot of that in Los Angeles right now where people try to incorporate their, because a lot of us don't go to church. We don't have uh, large intact families necessarily. And especially if you're an entrepreneur, it's, it's kind of your chance to strike out on your own and form an identity to define yourself through your work. And I definitely feel looking back on it now, that that's what I use my, my shop for as well, is that it was a way for me to, um, I didn't feel a lot of affinity for the traditional ways that people sort of give their time and give their energy into, you know, helping the, the world become a better place. And those traditional benevolent associations and charitable organizations are all kind of fading. Um, and I felt a lot of energy and excitement in the cycling world. And that's where I, I poured a lot of my time and energy. So I'd use my shop and it was, it did sort of uh, help to help market my business to use my blog and Twitter and Facebook and later Instagram feed to sort of promote the idea of all kinds of different ideas. And I ended up using it to promote a lot of strong towns ideas as you produce them. I would say, Oh my God, this is great. You know, and from a bike shop, you can criticize peak oil. You can criticize the big banks. You can basically it's free reign, you know, as long as you keep it, relatively uh, mellow and just focused on, on public good and I could just blast away. And, and so I developed an editorial voice and of my shop, which is kind of like this little bit of a screaming rhetoric against the, the machine of modern, you know, modern car centrism. And, and there's a lot that I found in common with the, the message you had about civic governance in strong towns. And I just, it's been a core part of uh, how I've viewed my own city now, which is, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a big metropolis, it's a very complicated place, a lot more, going on here than some of the small towns, or at least going on at a scale that some of the smaller towns in this country um, don't have to deal with. So it, it can be tricky to one-to-one -to -one apply solutions that work in smaller cities and towns to Los Angeles because it is such a big place. And the, the county of LA is even bigger. So there's a lot going on, but it's been something that I've I found, a, I don't know, I, Anyway, so that's that's the deal. Yeah, that's what I have to do with my bike shop. I want to ask you about your district, about District 1. But before we do that, talk a little bit about the Figaro for All group and kind of how that got started and evolved, because I, I think it's an interesting story. So I have a background starting this neighborhood bike co-op called the Bike Oven, run on this consensus basis. And that really taught me a lot about bringing people together with zero dollars and trying to do something to make the neighborhood a better place. I was raised in a Unitarian church, so we got all this they don't really preach any real religious doctrine, but they teach a lot about humanism and social justice. So I have this, you know, deep biting desire to do this kind of work, you know, and bring people together to, you know, fight for change, whatever, in a, in a more general sense. So Figaro for All was an effort that I, I started in my bike shop. I, I closed the doors to my business and opened them up to, I just invited everyone I could think of in the neighborhood. And I said, you know, uh, the situation on Figueroa is is a crisis, and as most of Los Angeles' streets are. But I wanted to focus our energy on a street that I could personally and my neighbors could personally really, hopefully, affect some change. So we got a bunch of people together in a room, and we didn't have a name for our group. And I've learned that when you do this, the best thing you can do with that first meeting is talk about what you want to talk about later, what you want to be about, and then come up with a name. So what we do is everyone shows up. I paid for some vegan hamburgers, if that makes any sense. <laughs> and <laughs> and I had some beer. Someone kicked in some beer, and I brought some beer. And then most people didn't drink, but we sat around the room. We all threw our ideas to the board and what we wanted to do and what we could actually execute as a group. And that eliminated a lot of things where you kind of need like a professional staff. 
the best part is coming up with the name. And we just threw a million and one ideas at the board. And this is where the value I've learned from my co-op of having a big, you know, men, women, young, old, children, seniors, everyone across the spectrum throwing ideas in terms of names at you. And someone's mom suggested Figueroa for all, because you can also, it's a very, this is like a 70% Latin American neighborhood. You could also do Figueroa por todos, which in Spanish also means Figueroa for all. And it's also a great name because you can shorten it to fig, the number four, all, and that's a great hashtag. And so we were really, um, had a lot of great brainstorming for free from the neighborhood. There was a Google survey that went out and I published the results and then I scheduled the next meeting. And the next meeting was, okay, now we have our action items we discussed and we have our name. We'll get a logo, a website, and now what's the first thing we want to do? And that was sort of how it started in my shop. Um, and it was really to help advocate for the bike plan that had been approved just about two years before that really there hadn't been much action on. Uh, so that was the goal. That was the deal. And uh, we just went from there. It was all zero. It's been zero dollars from the, from the very get-go. No effort to ever incorporate or become an official anything. Uh, and it's always been fueled. And it, it keeps efforts haphazard, but it has always been fueled through a legitimate concern for street safety uh, in our neighborhood. You taught me a lot because my inclination about Los Angeles, I had been there a few times before you and I started to chat, was that this is just a huge city and it's all cars and nobody walks and uh, there's no neighborhoods. It's For me, it was just overwhelming in a way. And then I started talking to you and you're like, no, we've we've got some pretty great neighborhoods and here's what's going on. Talk a little bit about your district and about that maybe perception that people who have not experienced that part of LA are, are missing. Well, you know, it's a common perception in Los Angeles because of its immensity. There are prior generations that have come to this city from other parts of the world, frankly, and they have overwhelmed the native born vision of their, our home, what is essentially our hometown. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, but my family comes from all over. And when you first arrive in this city, it has been specifically structurally designed to eliminate community life. So there, there's, there is not a surprise that people view it as kind of a blank canvas, but there is actually a very long, twisted, dark history here uh, in L.A. Everyone who's seen the movie Chinatown, that, that isn't a true story, but there's a lot of things similar to that that have occurred in the city. And uh, the neighborhoods that I'm running for office to represent, so there's a downtown in Los Angeles, which is re- seeing a lot of revitalization. And the downtown has been cut off from portions of the city. It is bounded by these major freeways, the 10, the 110, and the uh, 5, and a few others. Um, and so I'm running for a portion that represents the northeastern part of the city and a part of the city that extends from the western edge of downtown out about a mile. Um, and these are Los Angeles, many of Los Angeles's first streetcar suburbs. There's a time in our city's history when the railroads played a very, very big role. They still play a role, but not as big a role as they used to. Uh, when this was a 300,000 person Pueblo and then on onwards until we reached a couple million folks. So it's, it's neighborhoods with some of the last big uh, mountains just above north and east of downtown between downtown LA and uh, Pasadena, as well as a very sort of the Ellis Island of Los Angeles, which is the Westlake MacArthur Park and Pico Union area, which are just outside of the western edge of downtown and they've been through many different, you know, historical changes from the horse and buggy era where there were all these mansions. There were actually, there was a big explosion of Norwegian immigrants in L.A. at one point, and they occupied a part of the city. There's a Norwegian church uh, in Pico Union. That Those, damn Norwegians. Those damn Norwegians. Those damn Norwegians. They sneak in through They're the border, just you know. cultural <laughs> imperialists is what they are. They probably, it made right. you eat lefse and lutefisk and... 
So there's the heavy Norwegian hand. Um, <laughs> they have since integrated and, and assimilated and moved on, I guess you'd say. So it's a very diverse uh, district, but I will say that it is predominantly at this point a working class Latino, Latin American, Central American district. Uh, there are pockets of some incredible cultural, ethnic, and historical diversity. And as the native-born population, as a proportion of the total population, has kind of creeped up and passed the 50% mark, there's been a turn towards the pedestrian, a turn towards the cycling, a turn towards the transit-oriented, and a real strong desire to do a lot of historical preservation and to keep the last hillsides unbuilt. I get asked questions that I think when I was a kid 20 years ago, I never would have heard from people that are adults, you know. Some guy yesterday was, I'm driving from Orange County every day into Los Angeles. How are you going to make mass transit better? And I was like, whoa, that's usually never, those two statements usually never go hand in hand. It's usually I'm driving from far away and how are you going to make my freeway commute better? So there's there's definitely a big cultural shift happening as we have more native born people and more folks that are um, sticking around, trying to stick around and a lot of reinvestment in the core of the city. I can name the neighborhoods if you're interested. Uh, there's a lot of them. <laughs> One thing about LA is that it really is a series of very small communities that are connected together from geography and history. So there's Highland Park, uh, and Mount Angeles, Cypress Park, Glassell Park, Mount Washington, uh, Lincoln Heights, Montecito Heights, Chinatown, Dogtown, um, Solano Canyon, Elysian Park, uh, Angelino Heights, Rampart, Pico Union, Victor Heights, and actually a little stub down in South Los Angeles. It's called University Park North by the USC campus, as well as a portion of what is now kind of a sprawling area called Koreatown or Mid-City. So it's a lot of different neighborhood names in there. And some of them are very small and some of them are very big. They don't each, you know, just because they have a name doesn't really mean that they're uh, all of equal size. Um, yeah. But yeah. I want to get into the Strong Town's message and how you've applied that. Cause I, I think it's novel and that's really what I want our audience to hear. But I'm fascinated. What, what in the heck made you think you should run for council? That's one of those leaps where like I admire the, uh, the bike shop and I really admire the advocacy and getting people together. Los Angeles is not like a small system. It's not like, you know, you could, you could run for city council in my town and you'd win with, uh, you know, four or 500 votes. You had a video you posted the other day where 900 people were watching it. So it's a, it's a different size. What made Joe think that like I could do this? Um, I have a little bit of a background in politics and, uh, I'm very fortunate in that my dad has worked in uh, state and then city politics for going on 30 years now. Uh, he left academia. He was a chair of a English department at a community college back in the 1990s when there was a big uh, political upheaval. I kind of go through those from time to time in a state like California, and he got decided to get motivated in the voting rights struggle. In this state, there was a struggle to get a lot of people that are uh, Mexican-American to get more politically engaged at that time. So that was part of his kind of built a career around that, working with politicians. And so had someone who's always kind of had my back when I had questions about governance and how to push things through City Hall when I was doing my bike advocacy stuff. He'd give me advice from time to time. But I also, as a result, had a little bit of access to just sort of the brain trust of other people that had lived in public life and had worked in the assembly for a while. So I have a little bit of a background in understanding a little bit about how the political system works here in a trade, like the trade knowledge, I guess is what you'd say, because I did work in the, as a field deputy for an assemblyman for a while, answered, went to lots and lots of city council meetings and all that kind of stuff. You know, you get used to them after a while, public comment period and the city budget and all that stuff. Well, so anyway, I, uh, in this fight with Figueroa for All came to a head in 2014. We fought for, geez, it was like seven years 
to get this plan uh, pushed through. And, you know, when you're advocating for something in a city this big, it's people on the inside tell you, well, you know, it's all about the process. So uh, we did the process and, and, you know, we filled out our comment forms and we went to meetings and went to hearings and we organized rallies and rides and protests and got in the news and got on radio and got on uh, TV shows and uh, really fought and did all the stuff that advocates are told we're supposed to do. And the current council member I'm running against um, made a lot of promises when he was getting elected that he was going to do this plan. And it, it had been approved with a big million dollars, a $200,000 bike lane project and, and crosswalk project that had a million dollar environmental clearance attached to it. So, I mean, it's just like crazy. <laughs> That's how we do things in the big city. You know, it's just uh, nuts, right? A million dollars in bureaucracy for a $200,000 paint, uh, paint <laughs> work. <laughs> Unbelievable. But I can't even, I'm not even going into that seven-year process, and uh, it was funded. The, the engineers were friends of mine at this point. I'd been working with them for years, <laughs> and they're like, oh, look, here's the, uh, you know, the overhead um, schematic of what we're going to do with the lanes, and it sucked, but that's what we were able to fight for after seven years. It was a third-rate you know, American bike lane. So in LA, the way it works is these guys only have power as a full council voting, and they can do anything they want. They can say, you know, everybody's got to wear shorts on Wednesday, and uh, anyone who's named Gina can't sit at a desk with uh, drawers on the left-hand side. They have really crazy amounts of power uh, as a group, right? But in, as individuals, they have no de jure power. But there's sort of a game theory on our council that affects the way city departments operate. And the way it works is the departments know how powerful the council, when acting together, are. And the council members will act as a group to punish a department that steps out of line. So they give these council members a lot of leeway, and they kind of rule like little potentates. So this council member decided that I didn't back him in the last election uh, strongly enough. And so the project that I worked with my neighbors on was worthless. And that was in 2014. And like clockwork, the month after he canceled this street safety plan, a friend of mine who lived down the street, who was an old man, he was a interesting guy, I lived in a van. He was very, an evangelical Christian guy, but he was a sweetheart. He'd run into my store and sing songs to me about Jesus and just a really friendly, wonderful neighborhood presence. And he was killed in a crosswalk two blocks from my shop uh, a month after the safety plan was killed. And then shortly thereafter, there have been a series of deaths that I would say are preventable deaths on the street because what we were hoping to do was install a road diet that would have dropped the speed of cars on the street and made more space for walking and pedestrians. And that, that really hit me hard. I think it was like the fourth or the fifth um, memorial when we had a big demonstration over each one and I got a lot of flack from people saying, well, you shouldn't politicize someone's death is just an accident. It could have been anyone killing these people in the streets, uh, driving 50 miles an hour. I just kind of got to a crossroads where I said, what, what am I doing here? I mean, I've driven myself to the edge of bankruptcy and personal financial ruin, uh, organizing my neighbors and going to all these meetings and following this process. And the whole process is garbage. I feel like I was begging mommy and daddy to please, you know, buy me a new red bicycle for Christmas. And that's a big difference from, from buying your own bike. You know what I mean? For totally. When yeah, yeah, when yeah. you got a job. You know? Yeah. And I got, I, I felt really powerless. And I started seeing that what I was doing in the domain of cycling would never be big enough to really affect change. And at the same time, I had seen with my daughter, because I ride my daughter to school every day. I mean, nowadays I'm not, but I used to ride her to school every day. And we just kept seeing more and more people showing up on the streets homeless. I mean, just very market number of people sleeping on the streets. And it's, I'd explain that to a kindergartner, a first grader, and a second grader. We'd, we go to our neighborhood park, and there's a lot of issues in Los Angeles with our parks department. 
going back many years, but it's, it's one thing to see it on a balance sheet and it's another thing to live it with your kid and to feel like, you know, I'm not really going to address any of this with this bike lane stuff. So I have to take, I had to take stock on what I was doing and I, I stopped doing any of that organizing for about a year, year and a half. Um, I focused on my business, tried to, it didn't work very well <laughs> because I ended up where I am now, which is saying, you know, I've, I've, I've done so much community work in this part of the city that I've got a huge network of people. I never viewed it as a political asset, but it has opened so many doors for me. People that are working on my campaign right off the bat, you know, uh, professionals in downtown, people that are, uh, have worked for the, there's a software that we use to run my campaign called Nation Builder. And that's based here in downtown Los Angeles. And three or four of their original engineers, uh, I know from the bike scene and we've partied together. We've gone on bike rides together. We've organized and hung out. And then I turned around and said, Hey, you know, I actually know a lot of people. I did a decade of uh, free monthly tours to art galleries. And there's all kinds of small art galleries and studios in the Northeast area. I've been doing that for a decade. So I knew a ton of people in the arts and the nonprofit sector. And I'd done some really crazy creative things and gotten press for that. And so I had a little bit of a reputation and I realized, you know, I could do more with this. Who's running for city council against this guy? Because he's responsible for killing my neighbors. That's what I thought. And I talked with the guy that ran last time and he said he wasn't doing it. And I talked with a few other people that are kind of institutionally connected and they weren't going to do it because in Los Angeles, you never want to run against an incumbent. They get all the union money, they get all the developer money and, Everybody just wants to maintain that relationship. And I saw what's going on in the district and I felt, wow, he really burned us bad. I started talking to, talking to other people and there are a lot of people doing what I was doing, which was turning inward, focusing our efforts in one narrow domain of the city and going to the council office and basically getting turned down, watching things fall into decay and uh, having their youth programming get ignored, et cetera. And, and over and over again, from historical preservation down to gang uh, intervention work, we have a council official who's been willing to take that extra step to play political games with people's lives in a very real sense. And I just thought, man, you know, everyone runs against an incumbent because they say he's not doing the basic city services. And sometimes that's really not true. In this case, uh, that has also opened a lot of doors for me. And I thought, you know, there's not much in it. This is um, a big city, big, big city. This is a big district, quarter of a million people with 98,000 registered voters. But turnout is only going to be uh, out of 98,000 registered voters would be, we're guessing, around 18%. That means that out of 250,000 people, only about 17,600 are going to go to the polls, 17,000, 18,000 people. Because this is an off-year municipal election, uh, you divide that by two, you could win this race to be a member of, on the board of directors for a multi-billion dollar corporation with 9,000 votes. And I said, that's very I can do mystic. that. Our I can do that. He's not functioning. Yeah. yeah. But I said, heck, that's the win number in uh, Cerritos, you know, which is a small city in the southeast of Los Angeles. There's not much in it. And this incumbent is not feeling the heat from these neighborhood groups. And there's some, I mean, the bike thing is one issue. Uh, there's some massive, massive quality of life issues in um, certain other neighborhoods in Los Angeles, as any big metropolis has, you know really entrenched like mafia gang interests and you know illegal dumping on an industrial scale in some of these neighborhoods people i mean the couches just multiply like i don't know where they come from but so so there's big quality of life issues and our council official has not been willing to engage them so that's where i saw my political opening up a big network from a decade of really hard work i've saw the uh, inability of the council member to do basic stuff that i think is not not that hard really it's just more about him not wanting to do the legwork and not having the staff care 
And the other thing I'd say is that I also know from listening to Strong Towns, from reading my, my, I love reading James Howard Kunstler. I don't think he's always accurate, but I think he's always engaging. Being a fan of the new urbanism and uh, saying, you know, I have a lot to say in this sphere. And at the very high levels of our Los Angeles city government, we have a dysfunctional perspective of where our money's coming from, of how our city is failing people. And when I talk about it, other people go, yeah, man, that sounds really good. Like, that's great. So uh, we want to hear more. So I've found some legs politically. And that was one way I was able to talk with the LA Times folks. I think personally, I think I gave them a little mini junior varsity strong town speech. I gave in a Facebook live uh, video the other day. And I think that that swayed them. Um, the LA Times uh, editorial board, you know, got back to me and they said, what was that strong city, strong what? And like, <laughs> strong town, <laughs> strong space town, Chuck Marone, you know, call him up in Minnesota. So we'll see. I may be the first big city councilman to, uh, you know, be an adherent to the school of strong town, whatever that means. Right. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask you about that because you did get the L.A. Times endorsement, which bl- blew my mind, man. Not that I doubted you, but man, I was that's pretty incredible. I watched some of your videos. We actually shared one on the uh, on the site today. We're sharing it with thousands, tens of thousands of people right now as we speak. The reason I shared it is because here's you. You know, Joe out in LA walking around on the street, you know, giving people hugs. Uh, and, and <laughs> seriously, and, and you're talking about strong towns. Tell our audience how the strong towns message has helped you communicate important things to, to people in your district. The pain that Euclidean zoning has caused in America is something that many people in the urbanist circles talk about. You know, they talk about it in, um, the aesthetic sense and the social costs that we have cities where we've designed out socializing, we've designed out positive health outcomes. With Strong Towns, what I've found is a narrative that brings a lot of people together because I talk about the city's financial ability to meet its basic, the reason why it exists, right? To support the good life, to help everyone prosper. And then the city has sprawled out as Los Angeles to really meet the basic infrastructure needs that we have for, I mean, we have built the, the scale of the problem in a city this size you know, there are problems in Ferguson, Missouri with uh, infrastructure, and you've, you've outlined that in a couple of early podcasts. I mean, just imagine that multiplied 10 times over, and that's kind of what Los Angeles is facing. Um, when you do Urban 3's uh, dollar per square foot or dollar per acre analysis, the size of the problem is huge, and people continually say, well, I'm paying these taxes. Where is it going? What I found is that this, this analysis of where the money is going or where the money comes from really cuts through a lot of the rhetoric on both sides of the issue. Because usually what you end up with in a city like this is someone in the city hall saying, we don't have enough money, we need money now, and they want to do a new tax. And we've seen a lot of that. So we've had all these ballot proposition, bond measures, sales taxes, property taxes, and we're all getting hit with them right now. And everybody's feeling in a mood to do that because California, I think, is we're not experiencing a little economic doldrum the way other parts of the country might be. There's been a lot of growth, and people in the private sector have been we just voted for a lot of new taxes, basically. Um, but there's a lot of frustration in this city because when you want to build profitably, you're forced to do market rate and luxury housing only. And it's, at the same time, there's a, uh, a suppression of what I would call the naturally occurring affordable housing that's occurred for many years in Los Angeles. Uh, a friend of mine at Abundant Housing LA has made a graph of all the housing units built over the last you know, 50 years. And people say we're in a building boom here in LA, but really it's a huge historical building slump. And LA's growth has kind of been like 3% a year population-wise, population-wise, 3 to 5% for you know, a couple of decades or whatever. 
And so just keeping up with that, that gradual increase every year has meant we needed to ha- add more units, and we just have not done it. And so now we're in this big housing crunch. So the economy here is not faltering. It's kind of, you know, wobbling along, getting a little, expanding a little bit. The population is naturally expanding. And as a result, we have this huge crisis now with housing. There's no counter narrative to build more luxury housing. Let them build anything anywhere. And people saying, no, don't build anything anywhere. Um, There's a ballot measure this year that would put a two-year moratorium on anyone trying to build uh, with a zone change or a general plan amendment or a height variance, which is sort of the only way this you can build in this city anymore because we uh, downzoned in previous generations, uh, previous um, eras, the whole city, we got uh, big chunks that got downzoned. So the, the ability to build profitably has been like really curtailed. And all we're offered are these big affordable housing projects that cost, you know, $250 a square foot uh, to build and cost millions of dollars and take five years to build. And we'll never get enough done to cover the demand of just natural population growth we've been seeing. So what I found is that what I have to say cuts right through a lot of that. And it's, I've found, it's found legs in ways that I'm really surprised from both the urbanists and the people that you would better, that often get labeled NIMBYs. I mean, you've done all the heavy lifting in that. And all I've had to do was kind of adapt it for my, for my community, which is a big bursting diverse metropolis. And I try to translate it into multiple languages. <laughs> I literally wanted to give you a hug the other day. Cause I'm listening to one of your videos. It was the one after you had got done with the business group. And you went through the the value per acre with your shop and the place up the street. But the part that really got to me was when you said, here's my vision. I want to focus on, you know, these streetcar stops and grow three to five percent a year. The reason I want to give you a hug is because that's that's my vision. Like you were you were saying it, but you were saying it in your place in a way that I thought was just beautiful. Yeah tell you what, what the deal is. So this is the, the areas I'm running to represent are the, one of the first big expanded. So Los Angeles was a little Pueblo that was established when the um, Jesuits were kicked out of the uh, church out of the, when the Spanish kicked the Jesuits out of their, out of the, the missions here in California. And they founded the Pueblo de Los Angeles was like a, the uh, Franciscans came in and it was a small town for many years. And as it grew and we got the aqueduct connected to the city, the city expanded across the Los Angeles River and outside of its downtown from the old Spanish Pueblo. And that, that, those are the neighborhoods that I am uh, running to represent. They were some of the first um, Spanish land grant uh, properties and ranchos that were subdivided and sold, which is why there are so many heights and parks in the names there. That was kind of a popular thing. You'd name an area, something park and MacArthur Park and these parks. And there are these great civic uh, investments in our big, these old fashioned parks now in Los Angeles. These areas had their development really uh, around these old streetcar rights of way, the old electric red lines and yellow lines that used to run out through these uh, neighborhoods and were torn out in the 60s. And along these streetcar rights of way, you have a classic American problem, just like in your hometown, Brainerd, where you've got a small, rundown, first-generation scale of development along them. And when you said in your Strong Towns podcast, what I, what I basically said, which is, you know, I did this dollar per acre, dollar per square foot analysis of the building I'm in, which was built in 1907 and is worth double of what the big single use brand new car oriented uh, supermarket is up the street on a dollar per square foot basis. And there's actually a lot of 1907 buildings that are built. And that's great. But there are a ton of vacant lots along our streetcar rights way. And there are a ton of single story buildings that could easily become two-story buildings or could easily add a third story if the neighbors already have two stories. 
And if we focus on small investments, like in front of my building, the sidewalk is destroyed and customers can't cross the street, we could increase the likelihood that a property owner is going to pull building permits and get their building reassessed or sell their building at a slightly higher value and get reassessed for property taxes by 3 to 5% every year. And that's really my goal. I haven't had the time to isolate all the commercially zoned properties and you know, what their net assessed value is and then see what project out what a 3 to 5% gain would mean in terms of the specific dollars and cents. But that's very much what I want to try and do. And I think it'd be uh, in the first, you know, first four to four to five years, it'd be actually very easy to do because there are, like I said, so many vacant lots along these streetcar rights of way. So we have a vacant lot that's, you know, assessed for $5,000 a square foot, hasn't sold in 40 years. Even if it were to sell and someone were to put a single family home on it, uh, you know, we'd be at a 300% increase for that lot, you know, like in terms of the assessed value. And I think that's really it is focusing on building at the scale that city already is on these old streetcar rights of way, but it's illegal because of zoning code. Uh, focusing on that scale of development is going to provide some real financial return for the city. Uh, because what we tend to do is we tend to focus on our ridiculous money losing convention center and these large corporate mega projects where people come from New York and China with uh, campaign donations to buy special uh, zoning exemptions and uh, go really big. And the council people show up with the ribbon cuttings and like we're creating jobs and construction and growth. What they've really done is suppress the ability of all these small private property owners and the desire for small private property owners to reinvest in their property. And when you pull a permit in LA to do a new construction on your old building, the building gets reassessed at a slightly higher property tax. And so that's really what I'm all about is giving people the justification to add another story, uh, redo their facade, uh, expand and subdivide a big ground floor spot or to consolidate a ground floor spot get reassessed at a slightly higher value, but also be able to pull in more in rent and then make the neighborhood itself make property values spiral upward. And not a lot. I think three, three to five percent is um, maybe being too aggressive on some of these areas. But that's kind of my vision uh, fiscally for the city. And the reason I bring it up is that this city, like all American cities, runs a huge structural deficit every year. And that makes it hard for us to do basic things like provide services to the homeless um, and uh, keep my park bathrooms clean. And, you know, it's not romantic, but I will say that people see what I'm telling them and they see what that means because we live it every day. Uh, we pass through these old streetcar neighborhoods. We all live in them here in the Northeast area and in the first district in Pico Union and stuff. And we go, yeah, you know, we don't necessarily want to see another big box supermarket. We kind of like these old crusty buildings. We just would like to see them working again. And uh, they get it and they say, okay. You know, and the, the way that we can make that work is you got to exempt some parking requirements. You got to exempt a few floor area uh, requirements and, and setback requirements, kind of like the suburban tract, um, you know, zoning code. And I think we'd be there in a couple of years. And whether it's through uh, a big long term planning overhaul or if it's just done with, you know, parcel by parcel or block by block. I think that's really the perspective I bring, uh, basically, because I saw what you had to say. And I said, man, that could work in the big city, too. Uh, Los Angeles is a series of very small cities, you know, a lot of little small villages and hamlets um, in my name, my district in particular, uh, particularly because it is so pre-World War II and its development pattern. Man, going door to door here. I start on one part of the neighborhood. By the time I get to the other half, the, the ladies answer, they'll go, oh, yeah, I know who you are because I talk with my, <laughs> you know, you talk with my girlfriend who, you know, I know for 40 years and we, we talk. So we know who you are, young man. So when I'm 10 blocks over, my, you know, the word spread. Other neighborhoods, that doesn't happen as much because they're more transient, a lot of more renters. But in a, a lot of these old streetcar neighborhoods, 
suburbs, these original streetcar suburbs. That, that's kind of the infra- We're dealing with the same architecture, the same infrastructure, the same insane zoning rules, the same strodes as you do in small towns in America. Uh, we just have a couple extra layers of complexity and financial mismanagement and departmental dysfunction layered <laughs> on top of it. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I get in neighborhoods like yours is people say, well, Chuck, if you have investment and you grow here, uh, you're going to displace people. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna drive up prices and you're going to kick people out. You've gotten a little bit of that. Talk about how you answer that. Well, I mean, what I'd say is the way that we are seeing investment now, it is driving people out. Um, there'll be a big craftsman home built in 1919, and it's housing eight families. And uh, someone who has no other option and wants to buy a house, and uh, they come in the neighborhood with a cash offer, they buy that 1919 house, and they evict all eight families. So now there's like, you know, 30 people have to figure out what they're going to do with their lives. And they, and then only one family lives there and they have two kids, right? So <laughs> that's what, that's what investment and growth has meant for the working poor and the working people of this district is that kind of pressure. And I think really the perspective that I would bring is I've, and this is something that, I've, that happens a lot, you know, when you want to build something in this area, people flip out and they say, you want to turn this into New York city. You know, we're a small bedroom community. We can't support this kind of density. And I'd say to the contrary, in these old streetcar neighborhoods, because so much of this growth happened in these communities before the World War II uh, zoning code came in. I've been going door to door. I've been to thousands of doors in this district. And I go to a house, what looks like a house, and I knock on the front door. And while I'm waiting for the person to come to the door, I kind of look around the side of the house, and there's six units back there. And you never know it from the street. We have a vernacular architecture in all of our neighborhoods here in the, these older parts of this, of this city where we have easily been able to turn a single family home in quotes into a place that in 1925 or 1935, 19, 1942, someone said, you know what? I want a little extra income. The city's growing. I'm going to throw a couple little houses back there. I'm going to expand my garage and build uh, you know, a couple different little units, back units, and I can rent them to borders. I can take on a few tenants. And I'll make this property work for me. And so there's, there's just thousands and thousands of units like that all over this district. And so I think the reality is that what we've done is we've made it illegal to do that. If you wanted to do what my grandfather would have done if he had a place in L.A. in uh, Echo Park or Highland Park in the 1940s, 50s, we've made it illegal because you need to add two and a half parking spaces per residential unit. And this has been an area where we have these big investments in trains and bus networks. That was one of the biggest bus networks in the whole country, actually, here is running Los Angeles County. So these are neighborhoods that are made for this kind of density, that have a historical vernacular for this kind of density, and that fits perfectly in it. We've, we've already done sprawl repair. We wouldn't call it sprawl repair, but we did sprawl repair before we needed sprawl repair in Los Angeles, but we've also made it illegal. And so what I see is legalizing that kind of growth so that when we do have that kind of growth, people see what looks like from the street, just another single family house, and ends up being a little fourplex or a little sixplex. Or you can get little uh, one-bedroom and studio apartments, and maybe the, uh, really it's the one-bedroom that everybody's after these days. Little one-bedroom or maybe a two-bedroom couple of units back there. The property owner is making income, and the people that are living there are paying affordable affordable rents because that's what these units are all about. Real affordable housing does not come from the heavy hand of the government. Real affordable housing comes from thousands and thousands of small property owners making a rational decision to say, you know, this place is costing us a lot of money. And there are a lot of people that need a little place to live. Why don't we make a nice little place to live for a son-in-law, for a neighbor, for a 
whoever. And um, I see that perspective. And that's how we can grow without uh, gentrifying the neighborhood out of itself, you know, kicking people out. That happened to me where I grew up in Venice. I went to college, I came back, and all of a sudden the rents were so high, I had to move across the county uh, to where I live now. I just couldn't afford it. And I think that's a process we'll probably continue to see. But I'd like that the reinvestment, the, the restoring of these beautiful old homes should not always just mean that people are, we're going to be throwing thousands of people out of their, out of their neighborhoods. I want to ask you one last thing, and, and it's a little bit controversial, but I, I want people to hear the way that you approach it, because it is a national issue. Right, right now, at, at the national level, we're having this conversation over sanctuary cities and, uh, you know, what, what should be done with them from a federal policy standpoint? I'm not weighing in on that myself, but I, I found you, you know, you live in a neighborhood where there's a lot of concern about that. There's a lot of fear. Um, that people are going to get kicked out and, and, and people are not going to be allowed to stay. And there's a lot of fear of, uh, of retribution from the federal government. How has Strong Towns been part of that conversation? Because I, I found this to be a very interesting take that is well worth people hearing. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, there's something that has to be said for the, the rhetoric that has gone into In Los Angeles, we have a lot of people that are here with, that are undocumented immigrants, illegal immigrants. The word sanctuary cities means a lot of stuff to a lot of people. I've learned there are different policies in different cities. Here in Los Angeles, um, there's a whole host of things that, that it applies to, prime, most primary of which, in, in I think this city's case, is that prior to instituting what I would call a sanctuary cities policy, there's a lot of things that happen when you have a big population of people that are not documented immigrants, and they don't feel comfortable going forward to the police. So there are organized criminal gangs that exploit people doing all kinds of nasty things. And because they know they knew at the time their victims wouldn't come forward to the police. So in order to fight organized crime and in order to fight a lot of public safety initiatives, we took this policy on as a city that said, look, if you are being robbed, extorted, et cetera, all kinds of unpleasant things, and you come forward to the police, they will not ask about your citizenship status. They will go after the, the robber and the attacker and the you know extortionist and, and all the other things that happen. And as a result, we are able to go after organized criminal gangs much more effectively. So there's a real big public safety component in every in this in this city in particular. I'm not from another big city, so I just there's that component of it that that's why the police chief here is so adamant about it. But we've had a lot of politicians, I'd say grandstanding get in front of every camera they can because it's election season. It's always election season here in LA to let everyone know what a hero and a champion they are for sanctuary cities. Now, at the same time that they're saying that, you take a look at this city budget. And this city budget is, uh, we, like I said, we have a structural deficit of close to $200, $250 million a year, which means we go to Wall Street and we go to Washington, D.C. and beg for money every year and sell bonds. What also happens is this city receives about from the estimates I've heard, close to $500 million in federal grants every year. Uh, just the other day, I was reading through our mayor's analysis of the money we get from the Housing and Urban Development Department. And it's one thing to say we are going to stand strong and protect immigrants in front of a camera. But when your city is financially insolvent and you are unable to run your large homeless services administration without a substantial amount of money, tens of millions, hundreds of millions up. We get $123 million from the Housing and Urban Development Department, run now by Dr. Ben Carson and Steve Harvey, the uh, TV entertainer. And that makes a lot of people here nervous, but they do not have a response. Our elected officials here are playing with 
fire. <laughs> they're they're in a they're really over a barrel financially, and I think it makes the primacy, it makes the importance, it makes it makes what Strong Town's doing has been doing prescient. You know, right on the edge of where we need to be as a city, because you cannot say we are on one hand, oh, we are going to stand strong and fight the federal government, when on the other hand, you go to the federal government and say, by the way, mom and dad, can I have my allowance? And I know that there are constitutional restrictions on what the federal government can and can't do. But when the um, party in control of Congress and the president are not going your way and your city wants to zig when they want to zag, uh, being totally beholden to the federal government for your basic core city functions is uh, it's, you're kind of in a tight spot. Uh, <laughs> I think that was the, you know, the phrase from uh, the movie, Oh Brother, We're Out Now, right? Like, right. We're in a tight spot. <laughs> right. And I, I really see that. So great. You want to you wanna fight the federal government. And you're going to use the pretext of, of the constitutional laws and limits to prevent the, the government from overreaching. But they hold the purse strings. Not only do they have the military, which we're not even at that point yet, but they hold the purse strings and not in, a, in an indirect sense, in a very direct sense. Uh, we get millions and millions of dollars uh, to fund our homelessness services, to provide all kinds of uh, medical care. And it's a it's one thing to go in front of a TV camera. It's another thing to be in those negotiations, which we have to do every year. I think our elected officials here must have like uh, contractors knee pads when they go begging, you know, on the East Coast for money, because that's what we do once a year. Please, please, please. Biggest city in the California and the biggest economy, you know, sixth biggest economy of the world is our state. And yet we need to go begging for dollars. It's, it's a, there's an insanity to the way we've done things. And we are going to pay a very heavy political and actually a very heavy human cost if we're not able to protect our best interests as a city. And we haven't been doing that financially for a very long time. And I think now that the winds have changed federally, and this could happen in any American city. And I think it's happened in a lot of American cities where the federal government kind of forced people to do things that, you know, it's funny to hear a lot of left-wingers screaming about states' rights now. It's all I got to say. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and I think there are um, great reasons that I can see for protecting uh, doing these policies, great public safety reasons, but it's really tough to stare down the barrel of a of real financial restrictions on basic city governance and a federal government that is bent down determined to do things that are counterfactual to that and then say we have to go every year and we're relying on them to giving us lots and lots of cash. Lots and lots of cash. I mean, $500 million. Now, granted, this is a city with city, the airport, the ports, and I'm forgetting one other proprietary. Oh, we have our own utility, the Department of Water and Power. Like twenty billion dollars, we give to the the banks that we do business with. I think it's like one hundred and six billion dollars a year, with a B, uh, in terms of banking business that we do in terms of transactions. Uh, it's huge, and yet we still need to go every year and receive this outside money. And when you're relying on that outside money, and there's some ideological reasons that want to cut it off, they can play a lot of games with a lot of people's lives, and that can have a very real impact on whether it's safe for me to walk down the street, whether my neighbors are getting a fair shake in court, uh, if they want to get divorced, if they're going to have to worry about, you know, they have an abusive spouse and they want to get divorced, if they're going to go to court and be able to have a fair hearing or worry about their immigration status. So there's there's a lot on the table there. And what, whether you like sanctuary cities or not, uh, for any city that is financially beholden to the bureaucrats and the politicians in Washington, D.C., you know, fears can be very real. And it'll hit home sooner rather than later for, I think, a lot of us in major American cities, big, or in cities big and small, actually. I know that you know we're a 501c3 and don't get involved with politics. I wanted to have you on so that we could 
hear from you and, and just kind of experience the way you're communicating the message. I, I love what you're doing and I'm deeply inspired by it. And I just want to say thank you, you know, for, for, for being the guy you are and, and stepping forward. And I'm humbled that you're able to use our stuff and have it benefit you and the people in your community. So thank you so much. Chuck, thank you very much. And, you know, now that I have this platform, um, I'd also like to say I, I watched all of your See It Differently videos, and um, I never looked at fire hydrants the same. And I'm just <laughs> glad I'm running for office because my daughter was not that interested in how much it costs to lay down the pipe to build fire hydrants. And I have finally found an audience who is. Um, so, <laughs> you know, a lot of what you've done is, you know, from what you've said to, to what I'm saying, I've tried to incorporate as much of it as I can into this complicated morass of a big city. And I've, I've found that the message has legs and that there are people here that, that get it, that like what you're doing. And I think that it applies in cities small and in cities that are big. And just please uh, keep doing what you're doing and I'll keep doing what I'm doing to build a strong town. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.